Hello, Microby Gal Nation, and welcome to another episode of The Microbe Moment, the show that brings you down to the microscopic level to view the world just a little bit differently. I'm John. And I'm Tess. And today we are talking about some of my favorite things. We're talking microbes, sustainability, and of course, SciComm. That's right. In honor of Earth Day, we put together another top 10 list. Tess and I each found five ways microbes impact the Earth, sometimes negatively. But mostly always positively in the end. Should I go first or do you want to go first? You go first. Okay. Then, per usual, not in any order, here we go. Without further ado, here is number one. We're going to talk about climate change. Now, the Earth naturally has a cycle of different gases. These are usually driven by microbes, but sometimes, mostly due to human activities, these can overstimulate the microbial growth or overstimulate the amount of gases that we have in the Earth, and this can cause a dysfunction or a dysbiosis on the Earth. This is effectively called greenhouse effect which if you've been living under a rock for the entirety of my life and probably of your life, you don't know about, but chances are that you've heard about this greenhouse effect. Essentially, it is the warming that results when the atmosphere traps heat radiating from Earth towards space. These gases that trap heat are water vapor, methane, carbon dioxide, and nitrous oxide. We will talk about each of these and how microbes impact these gas exchange. But first, I want to talk about some of the effects of climate change just so we're all on the same page. So these are some facts that we know about climate change. As the greenhouse gases continue to rise, so don't our temperatures. In fact, since the 19th century, the temperature on Earth has risen 2.12 degrees Fahrenheit, which may not seem a lot to you or I, or maybe you like the warmer temperatures, but this would significantly impact the life of microbes, which are at the bottom of the food chain. And as those start to shift, everything else will start to shift as well. It's really a balancing act, and we have thrown the Earth off balance. Another thing that can happen as these greenhouse gases continue to rise, as we can start to see frost-free seasons, which may have some potential positive effects as we'll have longer growing seasons, but a lot of plants need that frost or need that freeze to really recycle or reset their lives. We'll see changes in precipitation patterns as we've already started seeing, looking at you, Texas, no one was thinking that was going to happen a few months ago. We're going to see more droughts and heat waves. Hello, California. Been there, done that. We can see hurricanes become stronger and more intense, so you better watch out Florida. And of course, the sea levels will begin to rise. In the past 100 years, they've already risen 8 inches or 20 centimeters, which again, may not seem like a lot, but when you're talking on a global scale, this can cause major flooding events. So welcome to water world. And of course, an ice-free Arctic, which means goodbye to penguins and polar bears. Don't say that. I love me some polar bears. Hopefully none of this happens and we're able to take a handle on our climate crisis. But as it states now, we are not in a particularly great position to handle this climate crisis. But the microbes may be our saving grace per usual, at least always in my opinion they are. So let's talk about CO2 or carbon dioxide. 
A lot of what I'm about to talk about comes from this article that is entitled Changing CO2 Levels Require Microbial Coping Strategies by the American Society of Microbiology. So carbon dioxide has increased 47% since the Industrial Revolution because of human activities such as burning fossil fuels and deforestation. Natural sources such as volcano eruptions and respiration also play a role in CO2 emissions. Microbes are a huge player in this carbon cycle as well. So I'm just going to briefly go over the carbon cycle, particularly on how the microbes impact it. So carbon dioxide can be taken from the air and deposited into the oceans. 50% of our photosynthesis on Earth occurs by microbes, mainly phytoplankton in our oceans, as well as a cyanobacteria known as Prochlorococcus. So Prochlorococcus will fix the carbon or mold it into something others can use. This is the same process, as I mentioned, as what plants do and you probably learned about in your biology class. Larger organisms then use this carbon or eat these smaller organisms and use it for their own purposes, placing the carbon back into the food web or oxygen can also be released, which is what we really like about it. But how does this 47% more CO2 affect the carbon cycle? More CO2 is actually going to change the environment. It's going to change how the microbes interact with each other. And one reason for this is as CO2 is deposited into the ocean, we actually see a decrease in pH or an acidification of the oceans. This in turn can help increase ocean temps and decrease carbon sequestration. Not great. So Prochlorococcus is a bacteria responsible for about 5% of the Earth's photosynthesis, but only because it has a best friend. His best friend is Ultramonas. So under normal ocean conditions, when the pH is not acidic, the Ultras Ultramonas shares an essential enzyme with Prochlorococcus, like friends do when they share popcorn at a movie theater. But under higher CO2 levels, when we have acidification of the oceans, when the pH is lowered, Ultramonas will become antagonistic against Prochlorococcus taking all the popcorn for himself and not sharing any with our photosynthetic friends. In doing so, Prochlorococcus is actually at a disadvantage in survival. This enzyme that Ultramonas gives to Prochlorococcus helps to catalyze hydrogen peroxide. So without it, Prochlorococcus will die in the presence of hydrogen peroxide. So if you don't know hydrogen peroxide, you probably have it in your medicine cabinet in a brown bottle is how I've always seen it. Uh, so some microbes are able to survive hydrogen peroxide while others aren't. So if as we continue to lower the pH of our oceans, we can increase this antagonistic behavior and lower our overall photosynthetic power. So you know what else rising temperatures in the ocean mean? What? What does it mean? More microbes. So there are some microbes that like warmer temperatures, but as much as I love microbes, this can be a bad thing for a number of reasons. Do you know why? I'm going to say uh, possible pathogens. Yes. And per usual, per every episode, we have to have our Vibrio call out. So this is where Vibrio comes in on this podcast episode. 
So Vibrio cholera, Vibrio parahumolyticus, these pathogens that we find in the oceans, we see increase as the temperatures increase. And they're going to start expanding to different environments and climates that before they may not have been seen, such as northern climates like the Great Bay Estuary in New Hampshire. So if we can increase the phytoplankton and prochlorococcus, then we might be able to combat the rise of CO2 and slow the effects of climate change. In other news, I just want to say that there is a team in Wiseman Institute of Science and Rehovo Israel. These engineers actually were able to create a form of E. coli or a genetically engineered version of E. coli that uses CO2 as its sole source of carbon, or it will eat the CO2 for its own survival. That's pretty cool. Yeah. And so the, the byproduct of this can be used for energy and biofuel. So it's a win-win, great circular economy. We just have to figure out what is a good system and how much of this we can use to help combat the CO2 problem that we have. So John, can you get us started on number two? All right. My first one is air pollution. Air pollution is defined as the release of pollutants in the air that are detrimental to human health and the planet. And a big contributor to this is burning fossil fuels, of course. Fossil fuels can cause a range of effects on people, including eye and lung irritation for acute exposure. And long-term exposure can lead to things like blood disorders, harm to organs, reproduction, and affect brain development, just to name a few. And this is a huge issue in environmental justice because often... It is the poor, I mean, soon it's going to be everybody is going to be having these impacts of air pollution, but there's definitely certain populations that are at higher risk of this because of how they were, where they're forced to live. And so this is also goes into that environmental justice aspect of sustainability. Exactly. And these pollutants can also lead to climate change and changes in the local environment. One solution is alternative methods to fossil fuels such as biodiesel. Now, I didn't know about biodiesel till I started reading about this. This is a fuel source that has the combination of a fatty acid and an alcohol that are made from things like soybean oil, recycled cooking oil, and animal fats. And a big benefit is that this fuel can be used in diesel engines without modifying to make them more appealing. I mean, it's cheaper overall, so people would be more inclined to use them. The sustainable aspect is reduced greenhouse gas life cycle or the overall greenhouse impact this biodiesel has, including its production and use, particulate matter and reduced hydrocarbon emissions. However, there's a big ethical concern about this because as people are increasing in population, this is moving food away from availability to people. And so this is where microbes come in. Take algae, for example. It kind of ties into what you just said. It can be grown and converts carbon dioxide into lipids, which in turn can be processed to make biodiesel. It is also possible to engineer microbes to produce this material. And it has been done in E. coli, where they put genes that produce what is known as microdiesel, which is biodiesel made by microbes. I thought it was going to be microvan diesel. <laughs> no, nothing that cool. Cooler than Van Diesel, I think. <laughs> yeah. It's too macro for that. Because it's so small. This is in its infancy. It can replace the fields of crops that would be needed to produce it. So not only are you giving more food to people, you're not using as much land to compensate. 
Yeah. And we'll definitely have to do an episode on algae because it is so fascinating. Like, I think there are some people that are actually just growing algae on rooftops, right? So you have all of these surfaces across the world, these rooftops that are essentially not used for anything. And we can put algae on top of those and then start using the algae for all the different things that we're able to bioengineer. Like it's, it's a game changer. Yeah. I remember watching a video of them using that to clean the local air and then they would drink the excess algae for its nutrients. Yeah. What an excellent solution. So you want to talk about methane? It's not quite so glorious. <laughs> Let's talk about some methane. So when I say methane, what do you think of? Farts. Yes. Mainly from? Mm, cows? Yeah. But methane is actually produced by microbes inside the cows. They're also produced in other places. Think landfills, agriculture, rice. Rice is a huge methane producer. And of course, the poor cows. According to Project Drawdown, if all the world's cows form their own nation, they would be the planet's third largest emitter of greenhouse gases. Holy crap. That's a lot. Yeah, it's a lot. And all they would be doing would be farting and eating. Methane is more effective than carbon dioxide at trapping heat, but less abundant than carbon dioxide right now. In fact, it is 34 times stronger than carbon dioxide at warming the planet. So it's a good thing that we have less of it, but it would still be better if we have even less than we have now. Right. Sometimes microbes can eat methane. We call them methanotrophs, and they convert it into a substance called methanol, which can be used as fuel. Microbes that can eat methane have an enzyme that helps break down the methane called soluble methane monooxygenase. In July of last year, Vivek Surinavas and colleagues figured out that the structure of the enzyme that helps microbes eat methane. They did so using an X-ray free electron laser or XFEL. By studying methanotrophs, we can better understand and invent new ways to decrease the current methane in the atmosphere. So let's talk about rice for a second. Did you know rice is a major contributor of methane? No, I didn't actually. Yeah, in fact, it accounts for 9 to 19% of global methane emissions. That's huge. But it also provides one-fifth of the calories consumed by the world and is a staple for over 3 billion people on Earth. So we don't want to decrease the amount of rice that we're producing because that's not good. People will starve. But we can start using smart agriculture or science-driven management strategies for our agriculture in order to reduce our methane levels. So methane-producing microbes are known as methanogens, and they like anaerobic conditions, meaning they hate oxygen. Rice fields are usually flooded, meaning they're anaerobic. We can reduce the methane emissions of rice paddy fields by draining the field in the middle of the season a few times a year. This allows the field to be oxygenated and to become aerobic, slowing down the emissions from the methanogens and reducing their overall population. Wow, it's like a simple solution that I wouldn't have never thought about. Yeah, it obviously does take a little bit of time, but studies have shown that this does not decrease the amount of yield of rice. It does not decrease the amount of rice that is produced by the fields and can significantly reduce the amount of methane that is emitted to the air in a season. 
So my final thing on methane is methane digesters. And this is something that I am particularly excited about, which sounds really weird to say out loud, but I don't know, it just kind of excites me. So these are like giant containers in which we use microbes to break down organic waste. They are sealed and anaerobic and they don't smell great. I got a chance to step in one. No one else wanted to step in it, but I did because I'm a weirdo, I guess. When did you get to step in there? Uh, when I went to UC Davis. Oh. They had biodigester that was empty, so it wasn't full. I didn't go swimming in sludge. <laughs> uh, but it had previously been empty, and so we got the chance to actually step in it, which I thought was really cool, and it was my favorite part of the whole trip. And it smelled terrible, but what happens in this biodigester is awesome. So it's like a giant composter. So the methane digester takes organic scraps and sludge and produces two useful products. One is biogas, which we can use for energy, and the other is a digestrate. So the digestate we can put back into the earth as a nutrient-rich fertilizer, which we'll get into some issues with fertilizers later, but this is going to be one that is filled with good microbes and, and it's going to really increase the yield without necessarily decreasing the overall environmental impact that fertilizers can have. So our trash is the microbes feet. So Project Drawdown estimates if we increase the number of biodigesters of methane digesters or methane digesters, we can avoid somewhere between 6.2 and 9.8 gigatons for greenhouse gas emissions. So one gigaton is a billion metric tons or a hundred million African elephants. That's, I can't even fathom that right now. Right. So just to put it in perspective, fun fact, according to the WWF, we have less than half a million African elephants on earth. So increasing these biodigesters would definitely help with our climate crisis. Boom. Mic drop. That's pretty cool. Yeah. So let's transition over to plastic. Plastic is a big problem. Like Tess said, plastic is an increasing problem for our world. One study showed that five companies alone produced 4.2 metric tons of it in 2018 alone. 8 million tons of it is being dumped into the oceans annually. And this is only getting worse due to COVID because there has been a surge in single-use plastics. Ain't that the truth. And of course, we know that plastic affects animals. Birds can ingest it and end up starving to death. Aww. Straws are killing turtles. And many animals could get tangled up and die in plastic. I hate straws. Yeah, we only use cellulose straws here or metal straws. And plastic also affects humans. Plastics have toxins that can leach out and affect us, like BPA, which has been linked to cardiovascular disorders. The fact is, plastic is breaking down into little pieces, and we can now find it in the food we eat. So what do we do? A solution to this, again, is using microbes. In 2020... German researchers found bacteria that could break down plastic and use it as fuel. This was a pseudomonas bacteria that ate polyurethane. And these researchers were surprised because it not only did it survive, it thrived because this plastic is generally antimicrobial. Even though this is amazing, it may be up to a decade before this bacteria can be used on a large scale. So everyone, recycle all your plastics. Yeah, it's definitely like we can use these microbes to mitigate what's already done, but we can also produce uh, or also limit the amount that we're putting out there. Right. And that's not the only microbe that's broken down plastic. Ooh, tell me more. All right. 
Now, there are oceanic microbes out there that can break it down. And one study showed that polystyrene that was covered in bacteria dropped its weight by 11% over a five-month study. What does that mean? It meant that the microbes were eating it over time, and it got lighter and lighter. Oh, whoa. 11%? Yeah. Wow, I wish microbes could eat 11% of my body. Just the fat portions, that would be nice. Not like my organs, if they could leave those, that'd be cool. <laughs> so do you have any other gases for us? Of course, I'm just full of gas tonight. <laughs> <laughs> so we're going to talk, I think this is our final gas. I'm not really sure, maybe there's one more. Uh, but nitrous oxide, so nitric oxide is a very powerful greenhouse gas and a strong ozone depleter, both not very good things. So nitrous oxide is a major component of car exhaust and other major component is agro-industry, particularly by agriculture and soil cultivation practices, especially fertilizers. Told you we we're going to wrap back around to that, but also through biomass burning and fossil fuel combustion. So according to the UCANR, one molecule of nitric oxide or N2O contributes 300 times more to climate change than one molecule of carbon dioxide. So once again, good thing we don't have a lot of it, but it would be great if we had less of it. So nitrous oxide can also be produced by microbes. Similar to what we saw in carbon cycle, there is a nitrogen cycle. This is the process where microbes take nitrogen and convert it into nitrate. Nitrous oxide is released as a byproduct. Is this part of the nitrogen fixing cycle? Yes. Yeah. So it's very, it's part of when microbes are in the soil, they can fix the nitrogen for the plants, which is a very good thing. And as a byproduct, they do release this nitrous oxide, mm. which is a very bad thing. In California, one of the top agricultural states in the U.S., 60% of the state's N2O emissions are from agriculture. One of the biggest culprits of this, as I've mentioned, is fertilizer, which dramatically increases the ammonia, which is a source of nitrogen, for the nitrifying microbes to gobble up. So again, our activities of adding this nitrogen fertilizer onto the soil is going to increase the microbes to a population higher than they need to be which is going to output more nitrous oxide than we need it to be. It's not so much we need to get rid of fertilizers and sacrifice our food yield in the process. It's more we need to be aware of the impact and the needs of our crops by, again, this more precision agriculture, this science-driven crop management strategies. If we supply fertilizers at the right time, in the right amount, at the right type for the soil that we are growing on, we can help limit the amount of nitrous oxide being emitted into the air while not sacrificing any yield. It's a win-win-win. So we are now halfway through. I'd say so. Which is your favorite so far, John? Mm -hmm. I am kind of partial to the methane. Yeah, so cool. <laughs> but then again, you know, I always like a good fart joke. Right. Yeah, the methane one is definitely up there for me as well. 
But I think the plastic eating microbes is also a very exciting solution for our plastic island out in the middle of the Pacific that no one can, that there's no means to get rid of. Yeah, I'm wondering if they can harness those ocean bacteria so you're not introducing a foreign thing into a new area and disrupting the environment. It would be very interesting uh, to see where that goes in the next 10 years. So let's get on with the second half of our top 10. Let's begin. All right, now we're going to switch over to a little bit something different, renewable energy. Now, over the last half of the century, global energy consumption has been increasing which makes it more difficult to transition to low carbon sources, if you really think about it, because you need energy more readily available quickly. And what's quickly? Probably cheap stuff that produces a lot of waste. Mm -hmm. And as of 2019, the world produced over 170,000 terawatts of energy. And I can't put that in context to you because I... Can't put that into elephants? No, I couldn't find anything that would make that... uh, (laughs) visually appealing it sounds like a lot it is i'm gonna go with it's a wicked lot wicked lot and the majority of this energy comes from gas oil coal and traditional biomasses like wood all of which makes up almost 86 percent of all energy production in the world these methods are all adding to the increase in greenhouse gases by releasing of carbon that has been sequestered in the atmosphere Surprisingly, microbes can be used to make renewable energy and may even help reduce waste as well. Nice. And the method is called microbial fuel cells. Love it. This is where microbes break down matter. And as a result, they produce electrons, which are then used to produce electricity, just like a battery. Nice. This method has been tested on processing beer waste and lake water processing. Of course, there's alcohol involved. Of course. Any good science has alcohol. Man, I wish my science was good science. Oh, wait, I study wine. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. Alcohol again. My science is good science. In fact, there are companies out there that are making this commercially available. And there are different microbes that can do this, including a group called Electrogens. Electrogens? Do you know what that group does? Um. Well, let's see. Methanogens create methane. So do electrogens create electrons? Exactly. They're not very creative with some of these. Well, it's all based on, yeah, it's all based on root word choices. And we also have Candidia species, Saccharomyces, and E. coli. Even NASA has used this technology on their shuttle. However, it's still far from perfect in terms of its efficiency, but it is showing a lot of promise. Hmm, That'll be an interesting one to look at in the future as well. I kind of like After reading that, I was thinking back to the future, you know, at the end of Back to the Future, when Doc was just throwing waste and it was being converted into energy into the DeLorean. Oh, yeah. It's probably just microbes in that thing. Yeah, that's what I'm thinking. It's it that it is. Well, so we're one step closer to wearing our pants backwards and inside out and having a hoverboard. Exactly. Nice. Yep. So what's next on the docket? So lucky number seven or... Maybe I should say unlucky number seven is coral reef die-offs. Coral reefs are ecosystems that protect the coastlines from storms and erosion. They provide jobs, are a source of food and medicine. They're quite beautiful. In fact, people travel all from all over the world to go see the coral reefs. They're the most diverse ecosystems in the world. 
often being called the rainforest of the sea. These underwater ecosystems serve as a nursery, a farm, a home to untold numbers of species, including plants, animals, and of course, microbes. The fish that live in there are the main protein sources for many coastal residents. And as the corals begin to die off, these fish will also be impacted, which can impact the diets of many of these populations. So coral reefs may look like rocks or plants, but really they are made of tiny invertebrate animals, but not as tiny as microbes, called polyps. They grow together and form what is called a coral head. It has a skeleton made of limestone, which anchors itself to the sea floor. In shallow water, many polyps form a symbiotic relationship with algae, which we've already talked about some of the benefits that algae can produce for our earth, which includes converting sunlight and carbon dioxide into nutrients and oxygen. Many factors are contributing to the decline of the world's coral reefs, including pollution, sediments from development, overfishing, and destructive fishing practices. Rising ocean temperatures and the acidification, as we've already talked about, are also helping to bleach and cause the die-off of our coral reefs. There are more bacteria and microbes on the surface of coral reefs than in humans in your gut. And there are scientists who hope to strengthen the microbiome of coral reefs with probiotics. Probiotics for everyone and everything. So Serratia marcescens, which is the microbe that grows red on auger, so a lot of people use it to paint with. It's very, very pretty. Um, it's a pathogen, so not great, and it can harm your our coral reefs. Scientists have developed this cocktail of microbes that they have put on cyanamines, which I used to be able to say before Nemo, but after Nemo... I never say an enemy, right? <laughs> I agree 100% on that one. Anyways, this cocktail of microbes can help protect the sea anemones from Serratia marcescens. So they think this can also be tied over or correlated to our coral reefs. Microbes can also help relieve environmental stress on the corals by making them more resilient to rising ocean temps or the acidification or even oil spills. Some microbes are used to help clean up oil spills, which in itself is another sustainable solution that microbes help us have. So that was my number seven. What's your number eight? Mine is loss of biodiversity. Now, biodiversity is the variability of living organisms in an ecosystem. Whether you're looking at a slide under a microscope, a forest, an ocean, or the human body, there's likely to be many different living things thriving and surviving. And it's a wonderful thing. Life is complex, so complex that it takes millions of species to create the world we have today. And it's always changing. This diversity is critical to the function of the ecosystem to maintain processes such as decomposition, nutrient cycling, controlling pathogens, and soil aggregation to support plant life. They're all connected and each piece plays its part. Wouldn't it be boring if there weren't any of these interesting shapes, colors, and behaviors to study? Sure would be. I mean, I think there wouldn't be any point to life at all. It brings beauty to life. Mm -hmm. And we're just starting to figure out what they themselves are really made up of and depend on living microbial bacteria, which influence our health and emotions in a myriad of ways. We are starting to notice that those of us that are exposed to a wider variety of microbes are healthier and happier. And we're seeing that as people are getting more and more allergens, they're thinking the less exposure we're getting to microbes due to being too clean is causing this. And there's much debate about how many species there actually are right now. 
The current guess of the macro diversity is around 8.7 million species, although only 1.2 million have been described. And this, of course, doesn't account for the 5 million to 1 trillion microbial species or the Hendrix estimation of viruses on Earth, which is, I don't even know what this number is, but it is it is 10 with 31 zeros after it. And a very wide range, but that's because only a tiny portion of what exists has actually been discovered and documented. And they are a big part of that. Why can't we put a more concrete number on how many microbes there are? Well, many of them are hard to find, and they live in inaccessible or inhospitable habitats. Most of them are too small to see, obviously, because they're microbes, and difficult to find, and sometimes live in other things like humans or animals. It's actually estimated that 99.9% of all species that have ever lived on Earth have already gone extinct. Many events, natural and man-made, can cause massive extinction events, and wipe a species off the planet, never to be seen again. Sometimes they come and go and no one notices. Others can cause far-reaching effects and or loss of opportunities. What if one of them could have cured cancer, providing nutrition or fixed global warming? We'll never know. They're already gone. Right. All signs point to a decline of biodiversity on Earth mostly due to the destruction of habitats, pollution, poaching, and chemical interventions by humans. The IPBES Global Assessment Report on Biodiversity and Ecosystem Services reported to the United Nations that 1 million animals and plants species are now threatened with extinction, many within decades, more than ever before in human history. This would, of course, affect microbial world probably by many, many millions. So we really should be thinking about increasing diversity, especially in the microbial world. For sure. So you want to tell us about number nine? All right. Number nine is the loss of tropical forests. There's a wide belt of land surfaces around the Earth's equator where amazing forests full of life and diversity thrive and provide for Earth's inhabitants. These tropical forests cover only about 7% of the Earth's dry land, but are home for over half of all species on Earth. Their unique climates have made way for many specialized species of plants, animals, fungi, and of course, microbes to live. Many of these species are still undiscovered, but what we have discovered are amazing resources like delicious foods and spices and products like rubber, uh, latex, and wood. You may not know it, but more than 25% of modern medicines originate from plants in the tropical forests of the world. Some even call them the world's largest pharmacy. Still, we only figured out how to use about 1% of these medical wonders. These forests store carbon, absorb carbon dioxide, release oxygen, help make rain, cool the earth, help manage soil and water resources, and regulate Earth's climate. However, slashing and burning these wonders has occurred for many years, and despite dire warning, it continues to escalate as the world continues to burn. Deforestation of the tropical forest to harvest wood for many products we use and makes way for crops and pastures for the food we eat is disseminating these habitats. In 1750, cropland and pasture land occupied 6 to 7% of the Earth's surface. By 1990, this has increased to 35 to 39%. Wow. Unfortunately, this has been done with total disregard of the consequences, including killing off entire species and driving many others to the brink of extinction. 
especially microbes. That's a lot of photosynthesizers no longer pumping out the oxygen many life forms need, as well as removing the carbon dioxide from the atmosphere. Carbon dioxide is one of the major greenhouse gases, like we said, which are contributing to global warming and has many consequences on Earth. Yeah, so as we've been saying, it's not so much of inventing new ways, it's trying to find new balances or, or bringing the earth back to a balance that it was before the human activity. In doing so, protecting the people that are already on the planet, which leads us into our final way microbes impact sustainability and can help us in our climate crisis. What's number 10 then? Human overpopulation, which is a pretty loaded topic, and we're not going to talk so much about how to stop overpopulation because I don't think that's our business, but we are going to talk about how we can help manage the increasing population on the earth. So here's a question for you, John. All right. Our food industry is pretty broken, as um, I hope people are at least aware of. Project Drawdown has ranked the best solutions to help help us reset our broken food industry and our broken planet. So I'm going to give you four solutions that they put out there, and I want you to rank them to what is most significant in helping the earth to least significant in helping the earth. These are all super helpful ways, and if you can do any of them, definitely do it. But which, if you could only do one, which one is the most impactful? So number one, we have cooking over clean stove. Number two is composting your waste. So this could be either vermicomposting with worms or the traditional composting uh, in your backyard. Number three, eating a plant-heavy diet. So again, this is not saying you can't eat meat, it's saying eat more plants because it means less animals, less methane into the earth. And number four, throw away less food. So one more time. One, cook over clean stoves. Two, compost your waste. Three, eat a plant-heavy diet. And four, throw away less food. Which one do you think is the most impactful? My guess would be eating a plant-heavy diet just because of all the cows creating methane. Yeah, I thought so too, but it's actually throwing away less food. Really? So Project Drawdown estimates that throwing away less food is similar to taking 529 million cars off the road, while eating a plant-heavy diet is equivalent to taking 496 million cars off the road. So less, but still a significant amount. Number three comes in at cooking over clean stoves, which takes off 119 million cars. And finally, we have composting waste, which is 17.1 million cars, which you may be like, that's not a lot compared to the 529 million cars I can take off the road by throwing away less food, but it's still about the same number of cars in California. So if we all composted, it'd be about the same thing as if no one drove in California. I mean, that's crazy because we lived not that far away from LA a little while ago. And during the summer, you just had the LA smog covering the mountains. You couldn't even see them. So much smog. So here's a few more crazy statistics about food waste. About one third of food produced is thrown away before it gets to our plates. And I've seen up to 40% on this statistic as well. 40%. Could you imagine if we could feed people with that 40% of food that's thrown away? There wouldn't be that as much starving if we did, for sure. Yeah, it would be a game changer. Right now, 
8.9% of the global population or 690 million people go hungry every day. And there's perfectly good food that goes to waste all the time. By 2030, this is anticipated to be upwards of 840 million people that are going hungry every day. And by 2050, the planet is estimated to be 900 billion people on it. Wow, it's it's only going to take to 2050. I thought that would have been sooner. Uh, it might be the way we're going, you know? Yeah. Those uh, coronials, is that we're calling the babies from the coronavirus? <laughs> I don't know. That's a new word I've put a new boom in it. Uh, so yeah, how we feed all these people, we need to increase our food production, and we can increase our food production with microbes. So as a bonus benefit, eating less meat and throwing away less food puts less demand on deforestation, and all the emissions and loss of biodiversity that comes with that. So this is actually something that individuals can do every day that's going to impact, I don't know, six or seven different things that we've talked about tonight. So it's a good thing this is the last one. It's like we planned it that way. Just ties everything together. It's definitely a ripple effect. So just briefly to go over sustainable agriculture, we've talked on some specifics about doing precision agriculture, about understanding the health of our soil and really getting the soil what it needs instead of just putting a whole bunch of fertilizer and hoping that it's going to grow. We can use science in more ways to help increase our yield and increase the health of our earth. Microbes can help in sustainable agriculture by increasing yield, increasing plant health, and increasing the resilience our plants have to stress, similar to what we were talking about with the coral reefs. So microbes have been known to protect plants from pathogens. So if we have less pathogens, we have less crop loss. If we have less crop loss, we have more food on the table for people. Other benefits include fixing nitrogen, which we've talked about, which helps with plant yield. Phosphate mobilization, um, we can create biofertilizers out of microbes that can help increase the yield or the resiliency of our plants. We can create biopesticides. So these would be microbes that are able to control for different pathogens, whether they're insects or or other microbes, uh, they can help control and mitigate this response. In addition, microbes are known to help cycle the nutrients that the plant needs. And a healthy plant, of course, is going to produce a more yield and more crop. And then, of course, having a healthy soil is going to increase soil biodiversity, which is another thing that we've talked about tonight. So many plants can't grow without microbes. Similar to humans, we can't grow without microbes. Uh, so bioinoculants and microbes, understanding the plant-microbe interactions can be really, really important to helping us create a more sustainable agriculture and a less broken agro-industry. I think that is all that I will talk about for sustainable agriculture. Well, my micro friends, that is the end of our show. Just to wrap it up, let's give you all the 10 one last time. Microbes can help us de-escalate the climate crisis by 1. Decreasing carbon dioxide. 2. Reduce air pollution. 3. Controlling methane production. 4. Aid in waste reduction, specifically plastics. 5. Reduce nitrous oxide emissions. 6. Create more sustainable energy sources. Seven, understand the loss of biodiversity and what that means to the overall environments. Eight, mitigating rainforest loss. Nine, protecting our coral reefs. And finally, 
feed the growing populations. We hope you enjoyed today's episode, everyone, and we hope you share a thing or two you learned here with your friend and families, because we really all need to work together to help in our climate crisis. So if you are doing something for Earth Day, let us know by sending us a Gmail at microbegals at gmail.com or find us on social by the same handle at microbegals. That's M-I-C-R-O-B. I-G-A-L-S. Love you. Bye. Bye.